Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So, you guys, we recorded this podcast last week on Thursday afternoon. And several hours later, President yeah. Trump ordered a drone strike to kill Qasem Soleimani. And are you, we, are you suggesting that? we should not be taping this no. podcast What right I'm now? suggesting is let's predict what hell we're going to unleash for later this afternoon. Also, are you telling me that was less than a week ago? Sure was. <laughs> so what do we think will happen by Wednesday? I'm guessing like Wait. an earthquake in Manhattan. Wait, you mean – by tonight. Yeah, when, when tonight. Because clearly we unleash like, you know, a vortex to hell when we record this podcast that comes six hours later. The articles of impeachment. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have a conversation about the strategy and then like, you know, no, right Trump after we're done. No, Trump will go to a campaign rally and confess Oh, everything. Wow. And we did it. And we won't have said a word about it. (laughs) Enjoy this very not newsy podcast. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the back from the brink edition. We are back from the brink. That, Are we? That's what you think. <laughs> back Once again, drink. I think we are teetering right there on the edge of said brink. And living on the edge. Yeah. Wasn't there, there was a song living on the edge? Aerosmith. Yeah. It's a uh, very not good Aerosmith song from the 90s. Yes. I think. Susan's like, why are you doing this? <laughs> <laughs> you are trying my patience and my knowledge of Aerosmith canon. <laughs> I only know like three arrows. Sometimes, <laughs> like Even three saying that, I don't know that I could name three. <laughs> we are here in the jungle studio with my good friends Ben Wittis, Mark Hoffman Wittis, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody. Hi, Yo. Did you enjoy your time on the brink? I did. Yeah. It, it really makes you feel alive, alive. out there, you know? When you the think year is starting off with a bang. you think about to go to war. On the podcast this week, what else? President Trump says Iran is backing down after a missile strike on U.S. bases in retaliation for the killing of Qasem Soleimani, which clearly we caused. The crisis has calmed, but what did we learn from the administration's tense and at times bungled, just like I did, handling of it? And the latest on the still pending impeachment trial, which probably will have been wrapped up by the time that you hear this podcast. Let's start with the big news of the day. President Trump addressed the nation this morning from the White House, uh, announcing that there had been no U.S. casualties from last night's ballistic missile attack by Iran on two U.S. bases in Iraq, uh, saying that the Iranians had backed down. He applauded this. He said this was good for the world. I think the speech was largely uh, uh, what we kind of had predicted last night when we knew there were no casualties that Trump was going to sort of take the off-ramp here and this was going to be opportunity to to de-escalate and that there was not going to be a further U.S. military response to the Iranian attack, which of course was in response to the killing 
of Soleimani. Um, we've been doing some reporting on which we can talk about, uh, about how this seems largely to have been kind of a face-saving measure by the Iranians designed not actually to kill any Americans. So, Tammy, with that in mind and what we've seen from the president this morning, sort of a starter question for you. Did Iran blink in this standoff? Uh, I, it blinked at escalating further this long brewing confrontation. Um, it blinked at sending the confrontation down a path that would bring uh, high costs to the Iranians that they knew they would have trouble bearing and responding to. Um, but did they blink in the in the broader strategic sense of their face off with the United States and regional adversaries and the world on this set of behaviors that the Trump government has said that they're trying to confront? No, they haven't blinked on that. So let me just take a step back and recap, okay? President Trump came into office after a year withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal. Um, the Iranians waited uh, a long time before making any concrete response to that, but eventually started backing away from commitments they'd made to the deal. They then started escalating their own aggression in the Gulf, in the Persian Gulf on um, energy shipping, uh, hitting targets in the UAE and then in Saudi Arabia, downing an American drone. President Trump contemplated responding in the summer and then he blinked. And then through the fall, Iranian-backed militias in Iraq were escalating their attacks on bases hosting U.S. troops in Iraq. Over the last two months in particular, there were very regular rocket attacks uh, and um, and then the U.S. took this strike on Qasem Soleimani, claiming that it was to halt an imminently planned attack on American troops. We still don't know the details of that intelligence. So, you know, this is a confrontation that, to a certain extent, both sides kept it going. The Iranians, by escalating, trying to get attention, and the Americans, by not responding and not pushing back. And all through the summer and fall, you know, my colleagues who have worked for many years on Iran have said over and over again that this is what the Iranians do. They push and push and push and push until they get pushback. And Trump was not willing to give them pushback until last week. And what he did in pushing them back, it does degrade their abilities. It is uh, a very symbolic strike, this decapitation, killing the guy who's been the head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps' Quds Force, the head of their expeditionary capability, and kind of the, the figurehead, the, the photograph of all of their regional meddling in Syria and Iraq and so on. Um, but at the same time, it was a real escalation by the United States to engage in a targeted killing of a general in an adversary army. And so, you know, I think they blinked for now. But at the same time, they've said they are removing all of their enrichment restrictions under the nuclear program. We don't know whether Iraqi militias allied with Iran are going to continue shooting rockets at American forces in Iraq. We don't know if other American facilities or personnel elsewhere in the region will be targeted. We don't know how this is going to affect uh, the very, very delicate effort to negotiate a peace deal in Yemen. There's some indications today that that may be heating up again. So I think that the fallout from this uh, Trump decision, you know, we still have yet to see. Susan, we're reporting at The Post today that the U.S. had some pretty substantial advance warning of the missile strikes, both in terms of 
our satellites detecting the launch, but even previous to that intelligence showing that Iran was preparing to do this, but also the Iraqi government conveying word to the U.S. that something was coming. And officials are telling us that the, the where the missiles impacted makes it look like the Iranians didn't really intend to kill any Americans, uh, which kind of led us to the conclusion that maybe this was a face-saving measure looking for an off-ramp as well. It makes me wonder, and I want to know what you think, that this whole kind of past week feels orchestrated in a way. I mean, I don't want to be too cynical about this. And, and we still don't know, as Tammy said, exactly what prompted the U.S. to go after Soleimani. But to the extent that you know, we knew that the Iranians were about to do this measure as a kind of retaliation, I wonder, I mean, is, should we be reassured uh, by that, that this was managed? Or does this feel like this was sort of six days of unbelievable crisis that, you know, for that really kind of just amounts to some kind of, I don't know, performance theater, I guess? So I have a thought on that and then a question for Tammy about it. So the first is sort of on the issue of we appear to have had advanced warning. You know, I, I think the the interesting and important questions are what processes were in place and, and is this an example of uh, you know, a well-functioning national security process when it really, really matters? Or, you know, is the haphazard sort of, you know, Trump administration national security process once again in play? Um, on one hand, we do appear to have some degree of coordination between state and DOD and CIA. That said, there appears to be no communication uh, with Congress or very little communication with Congress. And there are some other um, somewhat alarming things. Um, for example, the Canadian government issued a statement saying that they had not been um, warned in advance, despite the fact that there were Canadian forces um, uh, on those military bases. And so do you think that it sort of speaks to in this past week, you know, Trump has taken this action and it's an action that's, you know, potentially had has consequences for and will place at risk a, a lot of different, you know, citizens of lots and lots of different nations. And, um, you know, we've been really, really focused sort of domestically and, of course, directly on the Iran-U.S. relationship and the U.S.-Iraqi relationship. But it was a little bit of a reminder of, oh, that's right. There's a lot of other people who care about what's going on and what does our communication and diplomacy and partnerships, um, you know, with those groups look like. <clears throat> when it comes to sort of my question for Tammy, you know, look, there's all kinds of commentary going on right now, um, some of it more informed than others, and in part because of the vacuum of information that the government, that the U.S. government has created. One sort of persistent and, and for me alarming thread of speculation is the idea that, um, yes, maybe this is a face-saving measure. Um, there appear to have been no casualties. So um, the president made a point of saying there were no U.S. casualties. Um, it, it, there have been no reported Iraqi or coalition casualties, at least that we can identify yet. Um, you know, so that was very unlikely to have been an accident. And so this really was about sort of a, a big symbolic gesture by the Iranians. And then, you know, now we're done. And as long as we don't respond. And the other thing I've seen speculation um, is that this might have been sort of the face saving gesture in the immediate. Um, and what will actually come is months from now, um, there will be a proxy attack or something that looks more like a traditional terror attack. And it will occur in that space of 
very thin plausible deniability in which, of course, the Iran- the Iranians know full well. We know full well. Um, but as we've seen in the past, the president um, might not be inclined to acknowledge Iranian responsibility. And so that, you know, that it's a little bit of a mistake to view this as, you know, the end of, of the response and the end of the escalation. So whenever we're sort of making determinations of was it worth it? Was it a good policy decision or a bad policy decision acting as though we now have the full known universe um, or, or will as long as we don't take additional steps? Is that conspiracy theory? Is it paranoia? Does it strike you as as rational and sort of and, and how, you know, f- focus should we be on that? And, and are there steps we can take now if we do pick a path of sort of de-escalation, not responding to this, um, you know, missile attack to also prevent, you know, something that looks more like that future sort of ambiguous kind of proxy revenge that might come months later. Yeah, I think it's not at all conspiratorially minded to worry about that kind of asymmetric response coming at a place and time of the Iranians choosing that we cannot necessarily predict or protect against. I actually, in the immediate aftermath of the assassination, that was, I think, what I said on the Lawfare Emergency podcast last week that I expected that they would engage in that kind of indirect asymmetric response. And often when they've done that kind of activity, they've tried to do it with some degree of deniability. And, you know, I think the the clearest example of that are the bombings in Argentina, driving a truck into the Israeli embassy, and then the bombing of the Jewish community center in Argentina. But I, you know, I so I think you're right to say this isn't over. But I also think that the fact that it's very obviously not over gets to a broader question, which you know, again, I asked right in the aftermath of the of the killing of Soleimani. And I had to ask again after Trump's speech this morning, you know, he comes out to speak to the American people and explain to them why he took this risky action, where we are right now is OK, and what it is he's looking for next. Like, what are his decision criteria? What what do we need to think about as a country? What are, is our strategy? What are our interests? And there was such incoherence on that point as there has been from the administration from the very beginning with respect to Iran. There was this zigzagging from saber rattling about our sophisticated weapons and how ready we are to use them to saying, but we don't care much about the Middle East and we should be getting, I want us to be getting out of there and NATO should step up there. Um, But it's time for uh, everyone else who signed the Iran nuclear deal to leave the remnants of it behind. And we're going to increase sanctions on Iran until they do every single thing we want But, hey, we should also be cooperating with the Iranians against ISIS and helping them build a big, beautiful country if they'll do all this stuff. So it was just a bizarrely incoherent message in terms of American goals and American strategy. Do we want regime change? Do we want them not to have a nuclear weapon? Do we want them to, you know, stop sponsoring militias? He didn't even mention Iranian-sponsored militias. He called it all terrorism. You know, and if we're confused about what the Trump administration wants from Iran, the Iranians are confused too, which means that it's going to be very difficult for them to make a good assessment about what they can and can't do locally, regionally, internationally, in general, without drawing, you know, ire or reigniting 
uh, an escalatory spiral. Ben, it seems to me, and Jamie is absolutely right, that the speech today was sort of just chock full of everything. It was like a jumbled laundry list. And we understand Trump was even making tweaks to it before he came out, including that he wanted to open, before even saying good morning with the line, as long as I am president, Iran will never have a nuclear weapon, which, I mean, I just heard that say, when were we talking about nuclear weapons in the context of this standoff? Well, and didn't President Obama say exactly the same thing more well, than and once, There were so. some commentators saying, if you squint hard enough, it'll start to sound like an Obama speech. But, you know, it, I, it strikes me, though, that there is some sort of continuity in the way that he dealt with Kim Jong-un, which is to take everyone to the brink, you know, scare the hell out of everyone that we're about to engage in a war, promise utter destruction of your enemies. And then when they seem to cave to your pressure, do what you want. And in reality, that's probably not at all what's going on with, you know, the Iranians uh, say, I look forward to a beautiful friendship and you have tons of potential. Um, Well, we saw how that's worked out with North Korea, uh, which is to say it hasn't produced any tangible gains or, or, or really curbed their nuclear weapons program. And you know, arguably, it's accelerating. And I wonder if you see you know, parallels to Kim Jong-un and if we're starting to see maybe something like – I don't want to say a Trump doctrine, but sort of another example of this approach of – sort of playing very tough and then pretending everything is fine. And, and it paper- worked so well. Right, right. And just, but then just sort of papering over the realities and declaring victory and going home. Or do you see something else in evidence here? Well, it's, it's interesting. So, doctrine is a very generous word mm-hmm. for it. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> a, a few thoughts. Um, it's the Trump instinct. <laughs> yeah, so uh, right. I mean – It's the art of the deal. The, I mean the first – thing that I don't think should go without mention is that Trump did in this speech uh, exactly what Republicans have been so angry at Obama for doing, which is he allowed the crossing of a very clearly stated red line. And, you know, he said if, you know, we would retaliate massively if any of our bases were hit. And, you know, that is what happened. Uh, And so for him to set that up as a red line and then uh, treat as a de-escalatory measure a merely symbolic attack, well, you know, among the other messaging, that will not go unnoticed. And so I think that's – now – that does have a certain resemblance to fire and fury and to the sort of contrast between the bombast and the uh, and the obsequiousness with which he has dealt with Kim Jong-un. He has never dealt with the Iranians in an obsequious fashion. Though he has um, said he was willing to meet with them. Yeah. And uh, although – He's he's even seemed almost desperate to meet with them. Right. So. Although to to be fair to him – I mean, I do think, uh, you know, Obama was in principle willing to meet with them too. And, you know, and so I don't, I I actually think there is a pretty big tonal difference between the way he talks about Kim Jong-un, which is sort of weirdly chummy. He likes going to summits with them. There's the whole challenge coin thing, you know, and, uh, you know, like there, there's there's something very weird about his relationship with Kim Jong Un, and I don't think there is any real analog to that with the Iranians, although one might say yet, because the 
chumminess with Kim Jong-un followed this period of bombast and, you know, take us to the brink, come back from the brink, and now let's all go to Singapore and party. Well, right? but also Kim Jong-un is sort of gluttonous and acquisitive, much like Trump, whereas the Ayatollah is like – you know, spare and, you know, and, you know, hyperbolic. Their personalities don't really match match in the same way. Kim is much more a Trumpian figure. Well, that's right. And and it plays into a weird, this is something that I, I feel really strongly about, but that, you know, there is this tendency in the West to make North Korea funny. Yeah. And to treat it as a comical thing rather than one of the most horrifying uh, human experiences of the last 70 or 80 years. And we do that because it is so uncomfortable to face what it actually is. But the result of that is that when you want to treat them like a bizarre set of like weird stuffed animals or teddy bears, which is the way he like treats Kim Jong-un sometimes, there is actually some some resonance for that account of them in in American popular culture. And there is no analog to that with the Iranians who are widely regarded as sort of scowling, scary people, right? And the and there's there's no sort of real Ayatollah humor out there. Yeah. And in fact, it, but what's interesting about American public opinion on Iran is that even though very consistently American public opinion is negative on the Islamic Republic and the sort of dark shadow of the hostage crisis is a very long shadow in American public opinion. Um, The American public is also very overwhelmingly opposed to a military confrontation with Iran and polls show at least a majority, around 60 percent of the American public assigns responsibility to Trump for the current tension with Iran. So he has to walk a very fine line in terms of the political space he has to use this sort of bullying um, with the Iranians. And I don't know that Americans feel that strongly about North Korea, nor are they particularly worried about a confrontation with North Korea. And so he has more space there. I I wanted to come back to a point that Susan made um, that it just to just to flag an issue, which is how amazing is it that there were no American deaths, but also apparently no Iraqi deaths? And you know, initial reporting last night from uh, folks on the ground in Iraq is that there were Iraqi casualties, but we didn't get any details on that. And I noticed that when Trump spoke today, he it was very careful phrasing. He said no Americans were harmed. And then he came back later and he said, no Americans or Iraqis died. So what did he not say? He mm. did not say that no Iraqis were hurt. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if over the next days and weeks it turns out that there were Iraqi casualties, but that the Iraqi government um, and the American government decided to just set that aside for the moment for the sake of coming back from the brink. Right, and the presentation of it all. Just want to say just – that that is the first time in the history of rational security or human discourse that the words very carefully worded were said about anything said by Donald Trump. He was reading. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, usually we don't associate the words very carefully worded with he did Donald stick Trump. to the script. So let's talk a bit about now about how the administration 
uh, I don't want to say rolled out the case for action against Iran. It was how they sort of retroactively tried to persuade us that the the, the case for action against Iran was sound. Um, it was it was striking, I think, to me and probably to all of us that the three officials that you really saw the most out talking in front of the cameras. Uh, Mike Pompeo, Esper, the Secretary of Defense, and General Milley, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, I thought they all gave similar but significantly different and important ways descriptions of the Iran threat, including this key question of whether Soleimani was planning imminent attacks. And you had sort of Pompeo at the far end of this spectrum, I thought, saying you know, there were imminent attacks against that could kill hundreds of Americans. I mean, making it sound like he was plotting a spectacular attack of the kind that we think about when we talk about what al-Qaeda has done or even like what ISIS is capable of, but on some kind of grand level. Uh, Milley, Associating with those generally but backing away just a little bit from the question of imminence. On background, we had officials telling us more from the military side. They thought Pompeo was actually torquing it too much mm. uh, on the imminence thing and that it wasn't actually that solid. Uh, and then I think even you know a little bit further over, you know, Esper kind of trying to strike some weird balance yesterday where he said, well, we had exquisite intelligence <laughs> – which is actually it's a it term of art. It's a term of art. Yeah, it's a technical term, which 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 kind of suggests like signals intelligence, communications intercepts, something really specific that tells you about intentions. So they're all. But the point of all this was, I mean, none of them are on the same page. There's clearly not a set of talking points. It raises questions that you all brought up in a lawfare podcast about the legality of the strike, of whether there was actually a legal rationale or justification spelled out beforehand, because that presumably would have provided some kind. Kind of you know coherent framework for talking about this, um, and I mean, Susan, I guess I want to ask you this first. I mean, as someone who has worked in the intelligence community, what did you make of the way that officials were both trying to retroactively you know uh, justify this, and at the same time could not seem to settle on one definition of what the threat actually was? Yeah, I continue to be really bothered by it, and and I think maybe more bothered by other people. Um, the degree of inconsistency about how exactly this threat and the intelligence underlying this threat has been described. So um, Secretary Pompeo in sort of his day after CNN interview talked about um, the intelligence community reaching this conclusion and putting a recommendation on the table. Then later reporting has sort of suggested that this was the extreme option in sort of a Goldilocks options memo. And everybody was shocked that he took it. Um, Pompeo's statement certainly creating the impression, and, and for someone who's um, rather smart and careful, I think it's impossible to suggest it was accidental, that there was sort of this immediate or in the colloquial sense imminent threat that was being responded to versus later statements that have made it sound as though um, there's something that's a sort of a far more general uh, a sense of the threat and and maybe, maybe a sense of the threat that might still fall within the imminent imminence as defined by the Obama administration. Um, you know, we can debate the legality of lots of different points along the factual spectrum. 
We deserve to know where on the factual spectrum we are and having an administration tell the truth about what happened so we can then proceed to have both a policy discussion and debate about it and a legal discussion and debate about it is really, really important. It's something we took for granted in the past. Um, And one of the things that is, I think, most alarming to me today is hearing the the degree of difference between Republicans and Democrats. Democrats who are receiving briefings, a number of Democrats saying that no raw intelligence of any sort has been offered to justify this sort of definition of imminence. And, you know, this is the fundamentals of congressional oversight. The idea that, you know, maybe you can't tell everything to the American public, but you can tell Congress. And in the extreme cases, you can tell the Gang of Eight and you are required to tell them specific factual information and then that it needs to be true and that you have a duty for it to to be true. Um, Once again, we have an administration that by all external appearances is really playing fast and loose with the truth. And this is a circumstance in which how we assess what has happened and whether or not it was worth it and wise and prudent is so intensely fact-dependent. And so we're once again seeing Uh, an administration that has a credibility crisis of its own creation, um, and also the way in which um, there's, you know, the the good faith is asymmetric, because one of the things we saw as well is the administration sort of put this, created this impression, put this on the table, and we saw lots and lots of Democrats sort of coming forward and and even sort of moderate Republicans saying, well, if it's as described, then that sort of sounds reasonable, or we want to hold off until all the facts have emerged. And right, and so, you know, we have an administration that is shaping the narrative and creating sort of this impression in the minds of the public, which, you know, critics you know, tend to want to be careful, uh, sort of especially in the early days of, of not presuming that to be false. And, you know, I don't think the administration has given us any reason to have any form of confidence that they are they are being honest about, I mean, even really, really basic information like what was the nature of the intelligence was their intelligence community consensus on it uh, and whether or not it was genuinely related to an imminent threat either in the colloquial sort of common understanding of the term or even within the very, very expansive legal definition mm-hmm. of the term as the executive branch has defined it. Yeah. So I don't – first of all, I don't think the administration has any business using terms like imminence in the colloquial sense of the term. If this is a term of art in the way – in administration discussion for both international law and domestic law purposes and when Secretary Pompeo gets up on talk shows and talks about an imminent threat, he is speaking a language that has meaning in the law and – now, that actually cuts the other direction because the the legal term of art definition of imminence in, in administration speak is much broader than the colloquial sense definition. But I do think it is a very worrisome thing for the secretary of state to be getting up there and talking about an imminent threat when in fact the defense department will not use the phrase imminent threat to describe the environment and when – members briefed, including members like ranking senator on the Senate Intelligence Committee, Mark Warner, who was briefed on the intelligence and came out responding, I don't doubt that there was a threat, but I'm not sure that it seems all that imminent. And so I I think if you're, you know, if you're not prepared 
to make a, a significant showing that comports with the actual meaning in administration view of the law of what imminence means. You have no business using that word. Now that brings us to what the Defense Department has in fact put out there in that original press statement. Uh, that press statement is a weird, weird document because paragraph one of it, and it's, it's a three-paragraph statement, paragraph one seems to describe a threat to forces as the rationale. It talks about a preemptive self-defense of U.S. forces. Paragraph two talks about it in terms of both a continuing threat. Soleimani had attacked U.S. forces before. He was responsible for threats up until kind of the previous week, right? And that there were a lot of deaths of U.S. forces that he was responsible for. It also suggested, but as Shane, as you correctly point out, stopped short of suggesting that the current threat was imminent. Now, the standard that the Obama administration articulated in the Alalauki memo is continuing and imminent. And so that paragraph seemed to me to be very carefully crafted by Defense Department lawyers to suggest continuing and imminent without saying the words continuing and imminent. Then the last paragraph talks about deterrent. Deterrence is a completely different theory. And so I think you have a very confused message within that original DOD statement. Then the Secretary of State the next day goes out and goes way further than the statement and actually uses the words repeatedly imminent threat, which the Secretary of Defense in his press conference yesterday does not contradict but can't really support and the people they're briefing won't really support. And so I think it's a very confused set of messaging and on a matter that is actually very important because, you know, what we are doing killing a foreign military figure of a country with which we are not in an armed conflict when we cannot say that there is an immediate force protection issue or an imminent threat, you better have a good explanation when you take a step like that. And I think the inability to generate one here suggests that this may have been very poorly thought through on the front end. And I want to say that it suggests more than that um, in terms of that it was not just that it might have been poorly thought through. I think it suggests that the motivations might not have been national security motivations at all. This, The significance, the real significance of imminence here in, in the sense of how the public understands what happened is why now? Why take this very, very risky action now? Was it warranted? Was it merited? And I think there is a degree to which U.S. media and sort of the commentariat is afraid to seem crazy in saying, is this about distracting from impeachment? Is this about wag the dog? Is this about a president who most frequently tells the truth when he's leveling accusations against others, including repeatedly suggesting that the previous president of the United States would gin up military conflict with Iran because it was advantageous to the president's political choices. And, and I recognize that that sounds crazy and conspiratorial. 
I think it's it's irresponsible to not also place that on the table and and to place it on the table in the context of the way the administration explains to us what it did and why it took this step and the timing and the risks associated with this specific timing as opposed to later timing timing future timing pers- uh, pursuing alternatives first is tied up in this fundamental credibility question of what is the president doing? Whose interests are he serving here? And so I I think that this is a crisis that is compounding all and combining all of the worst and most alarming features of this presidency such that um, this administration is no longer entitled to the benefit of the doubt on even the most basic matters. Okay, so a couple things. Number one, I can remember a conversation we had early in the administration on this podcast where we talked about uh, the norm violation of the new Trump White House letting political advisors like Steve Bannon join National Security Council meetings. Why were we concerned about that? Because of the suggestion that political calculations would flow into national security decision making. But that's when we thought that there would be National Security Council meetings and an interagency process to make policy decisions. So we worried about process. That's not the way this has worked out. So I take your point on credibility, and I agree with you that there is a credibility problem given that the president is under impeachment right now on a question of whether he made a national security policy choice for the sake of his domestic political and personal interests. I don't mean to shove that to the side, but I do want to say, number one, a lot of left-wing commentators have raised that point. It's not absent from the public discussion. And number two, at least so far, none of the reporting is backing that idea up. And this administration leaks enough And journalists are working hard enough that if it were there, we probably would hear about it a little bit. And I'm struck that we haven't. What we know, though, is that we have an incompetent, inexperienced, amateur team of national security policymakers. The idea that this policy option was presented to the president without having been discussed within the national security principles is evidence of that. What I would say, stepping away from the imminence question, I would say if the United States government really believed that there was an urgent threat not to American forces in Iraq, then let's remember it's not only American forces, it's also Iraqi forces, it's German forces, it's a range of NATO allies, it's other international partners who are present on the ground as trainers and participating in the anti-ISIS fight. There was no warning given to any of them of an urgent threat that we know of. There was no warning to them that in response to an urgent threat, the United States was going to go engage in a targeted killing that might blow up Iraq and blow up the region. And so, you know, when I think about the intelligence behind the decision to take the strike and how credible or not credible is it, I think about the contrast between what didn't happen before the Soleimani strike any warning to partners, any public warning, hey, we know you're planning this. If you do it, we'll get you bad. As compared to what they did, you know, in advance of this Iranian strike, they had warning. The Iraqis had warning, shared it with the Americans. The Americans engaged in force protection, you know, and look, nobody got killed. 
So to me, that says a lot more about how urgent and important and specific and concrete this threat really was. And to the extent that allies and partners are feeling bruised by that lack of warning and therefore doubtful about the urgency, that's just going to make them less and less and less willing, number one, to stay in Iraq and work with the U.S. to defeat ISIS and help the Iraqis, and number two, to cooperate with us on anything else related to this confrontation. Just as we close this segment out, I just want to reflect on two things that we found in our reporting that I think go to the question of whether there were non-policy motivations for what the president decided to do with Soleimani, sort of in the category that Susan is talking about of you know, things that might be like distracting from impeachment. What we found is that he had talked to aides about how he did not want, in his mind, another Benghazi situation, right? Which, I mean, if you're giving him the benefit of the doubt, obviously, I don't think the president wants dead Americans on his watch. But what he really means by that is not being compared to Barack Obama. Yeah, right? I mean, so that's the, what that's the, what's haunting the him reporting there. in your story about that. I, I think if if the considerations that he listed is he wanted to seem strong, he wanted to seem stronger than Obama. And he didn't want a Benghazi situation. And I think the first two considerations have to color the way how right. generously that's you right. understand the third. I totally agree. And, and, and I think that's the impression that his aides were trying to convey too, or people who talked to him about it, I should say. And the other is he was annoyed at the leaks back from the summer when he called off the airstrike on Iran at the last minute following the downing of our surveillance drone because he didn't like that it made them look – uh, bungled and made him look weak, which, I mean, in many ways it did, and it made him look indecisive. So here we had an example of the president sort of, I guess, a fool me once, shame on, you know, how George Bush say that? Don't be fooled again. <laughs> <laughs> that was the who. That was the who. <laughs> um, but, you know, very, very much thinking, it seemed to us less I mean, about, I don't want to say he's not entirely thinking about the policy and the moment, I'm sure he is, but there are these big factors influencing this decision about how he's perceived, whether he's seen as strong or weak, and whether people are comparing him to the one person in the world who will make him do the exact opposite, which is Barack Obama. Look, Susan and my book is centrally about his inability to distinguish between personal interest and public interest. And this is a a very brilliant example of it, right? That, yeah, he it's not that he doesn't want what's best for America. It's that he defines what's best for America in terms of what's best for him. And so an outcome in which he looks good relative to Obama is the public interest. And he has no ability to distinguish, you know, that sense of what's good for him from a sense of what's the good at all. All right. Well, speaking of that thing that he was maybe trying to distract us from, <laughs> there's an impeachment trial pending, maybe happening sooner than we thought. Uh, it looks like, well, I don't know if Nancy Pelosi is any closer to sending the articles of impeachment over to the Senate, but Mitch McConnell says he has the votes to start. So it's a little bit of more uh, bluff calling. But let's start with uh, what was uh, another piece of news that landed in the middle of this Iran crisis, which I think in some pretty big ways may have shifted 
not the outcome of the impeachment trial, which I think is still, uh, you know, not in question, um, but some of the calculus and the path to how we get there, which is that John Bolton, the former national security advisor, said in a statement on his website or more specifically his political action committee's website um, that he would testify in the Senate if he were subpoenaed. So, Ben, I want to ask you, A, why do you think he's doing this? And I also thought it was implied in his statement that I wouldn't be willing to testify if subpoenaed by the House. Uh, I'm curious if you think that that's what he was saying, and if so, why he's drawing a distinction between the two chambers. Okay, there's a few embedded questions there, and in fairness to John Bolton, I want to unpack them. So Bolton's position from the beginning has been – that there is a significant separation of powers issue when the president directs a top aide not to testify and Congress demands that he testify. Bolton does not want to be the decider on that. And so he was hoping in the House that the Kupperman litigation would resolve that issue. It did not because the House withdrew the subpoena to Kupperman and the case was consequently dismissed as moot. And so Bolton doesn't have an answer to the question, which branch does he have to listen to? So uh, in if you're taking Bolton's account of this at total face value, it's not – I think that he has more respect for the Senate than he does for the House. It's merely that – uh, that he was hoping for a resolution, he didn't get it. And so now if the Senate needs his testimony and subpoenas him, he will comply. Now, if I'm saying I give that all, that is I think how Bolton and his lawyers would describe the situation. I think a somewhat more cynical account would would run something like this. Bolton is a drama queen and uh he really wants to be in the center of the conversation and it with is with his a, mustache and it is much more dramatic for him and his mustache to show up at the the sort of climactic moment of the senate trial than it is to show up as merely another witness before adam schiff and it's more statesmanlike and he would walk in and to the extent that he has a shiv to uh, stick in the president's back that's a bigger moment to do it um so that would be the 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 less uh, charitable way oh, to understand it. I can out cynic you on that. <laughs> That's your cynical explanation of John Bolton? I think the cynical explanation is that John Bolton is writing a book and he wants to tell this story in a book. And so to the extent that John Bolton is interested in the presentation of John Bolton, adults in the room and noble patriot, he knows that he cannot very well get away with taking the position of refusing to provide testimony to the United States Congress and impeachment uh, hearings, only to then months later reveal it in a book. And the ideal outcome for John Bolton would have been if the court had prevented Congress from being able to compel his testimony, such that he then, you know, there was no way... There was no forum for him to do so, and so the book is the only way he can spill out I these can juicy only do tidbits. It in hardcover. But but I think <laughs> I, I think that the cynical explanation is John Bolton is about to make a ton of money telling this story, and he recognizes that the PR move is that he's got to give Congress the first crack at it because uh, he's not going to get away with you know withholding it only to to publish this book right before the election. Can we also just quickly? 
just procedurally to make sure I understand this, if the Senate wants to subpoena him, does Mitch McConnell have to introduce like the motion to subpoena? Or is it just a matter of the Senate having 51 members who say, yeah, subpoena him. Let's hear from John Bolton. Like, how is that going to happen? Okay, here's how it happens under these rather weird Senate rules. Okay, so the format here, this is not an oversight hearing. It's actually a trial. So the senators and the majority leader don't actually do the calling. The defense or the prosecution does the calling. The prosecution in this context is called the House managers and the president's lawyers. And so they, you know, one side presents their case and calls whatever witnesses they want to call. The role of the Senate is not that they call the witnesses. It's that they can move to squelch the witnesses. And so the way this would present would be Adam Schiff, say, as the chief house manager, which I suspect he likely will be, would call John Bolton and one of the senators or the other side would object on grounds that like he's irrelevant and then John Roberts, the chief justice, would have to rule on that or submit it to the Senate and if he ruled on it, the Senate could overturn his ruling by a majority vote. So the sense in which the Senate gets to decide is they get to decide whether to squelch the witness, you know, quash the subpoena basically. In addition, the Senate can also vote on a motion to dismiss, which effectively means among other things, we're not hearing any more witnesses, right? Or we can move directly to judgment. So these are motions that would come before the Senate. But what won't happen is like, you know, Senator so-and-so from such and such state, you know, raises his or her hand and says, I move to call John Bolton. Okay. So it sounds to me then like there's a pretty good chance that John Bolton's going to testify because just politically I'm thinking the Democrats can probably get enough moderate Republicans to come over to hear from John Bolton, right? So I just want to clarify, the House managers can subpoena a witness that they wish to call. They can call the, they can call the witnesses and the, House, the, the Senate can then refuse basically. Right. Like presumably, they, presumably Adam Schiff calls John Bolton and the Republicans say, oh, hell no. Well, we're presuming we're at that point. Uh, then there would be enough, I would think, Republicans who would defect aside with Democrats and say, no, 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 we're enforcing. Well, but who subpoena. would issue a subpoena that would then become the subject of a court challenge? That's my question. It's not – realistically, this is not going to be a court challenge. It's, it's going to be fought out in the Senate. The subpoena is issued by the Senate. OK. I mean I do think one of the interesting questions is – I do think at this point it's more likely than not that we do hear John Bolton's testimony. Um, I just – I don't think Mitch McConnell has that much control over his caucus. And, and even though he says he has the votes to proceed, he has the votes to proceed with initiating the trial without um, – uh, without having an agreement on any of the uh, any of the big questions like witnesses, um, of course, the Democrats had wanted an agreement on those things before they transmitted the articles of impeachment. Um, one thing that I, I do think is is an interesting theory, and, and ben, whenever Ben floated it yesterday, I insisted he write it up 
in a Twitter thread to see what other people have thought about it, um, is the idea that if for some reason there isn't uh, enough reassurance from the Senate that they do intend to call John Bolton, either in the form of Mitch McConnell saying something or more significantly, a handful of moderate Republicans like Mitt Romney or Susan Collins saying, I sure would like to hear from John Bolton, um, that the House should now subpoena Bolton themselves. Um, And that to the extent that Ben was describing sort of, well, you know, institutionally, he wasn't saying he was refusing to comply with the House and would comply with the Senate, just the timing. Um, You know, certainly his legal objection, you can't legally object to a congressional subpoena from the Senate but not from, or you can't legally object to it from the House, but not the Senate, right? It doesn't doesn't work that way. John Bolton has effectively forfeited his argument. And so, um, you know, I'm of the mind that... um, uh, that that's a powerful hand for um, for the for the House to play to sort of take up Ben's suggestion that essentially unless Mitch McConnell agrees to uh, to procedural rules in which John Bolton will end up being called or agrees agrees to it outright, you know the House should issue a subpoena for John Bolton and hold the articles until they get it. And if John Bolton wants to litigate the question in court, then then they should litigate that question. And that's one of the benefits of this risky move of holding back the articles in the first place, um, because to the extent you have people like Marco Rubio saying, we shouldn't hear, we shouldn't consider any evidence that wasn't presented in the House. The answer is, oh, OK, then like, hold on a sec, because John Bolton just changed his mind. So we're going to go back to the House, get all that nice testimony that you said you really wanted to come in the right forum. And then the Senate, we will get right back to you just as soon as we have that. We might need to amend an additional article of impeachment, of course, based on what he said. <laughs> right. um, or maybe not transmit one if he is truly exonerating of the president. Um, and then you guys can proceed. And I, I usually am hugely skeptical of sort of procedural gamesmanship in sort of the impeachment context. I think it it generally tends to backfire, but I don't see why that's not just the logical thing to do. And what all of this is is pointing up to, and Ben, I know you have thoughts about this, is you're seeing really two master political strategists at work here in Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, and Mitch McConnell, the Majority Leader in the Senate. I mean, in so much of what the back and forth has been, not just since the impeachment articles were drafted, but really throughout this whole drama, has been these two kind of titans of the Congress sort of circling and sizing each other up. It's a, Tammy, you want to well, say Well, I just wanted to add on to that point because, yes, they are both masters of uh, of how to use this body and its procedures to their benefit. But it does seem to me that there's a certain asymmetry here in that both of them need an impeachment that has enough procedural integrity to pass a smell test. And that hands an advantage to Nancy Pelosi, who wants a maximally credible process. You know, McConnell's trying to thread a needle, make mm-hmm. it as easy as possible for the president, but still clear that credibility bar. And that's a lot harder. Yeah. Many years ago, I was talking to a Supreme Court appellate lawyer about this case that he was really excited about in the Supreme Court. And it was actually it's a case in which uh, that w- involved voting restrictions in Hawaii that limited a series of votes to only Ala- uh, Hawaii natives. And I, you know, it seemed like a weird and relatively unimportant case, and this guy was really excited about it. And I asked him why he's so excited about it, and he said, "Well, 
because the quality of the argumentation is going to be superb because Ted Olson is on one side of it and John Roberts, who was then an appellate lawyer, was on, is on the other side of it. And it actually had nothing to do with the substance of the case. It was just interested in the sort of beauty of the dance of the advocacy. And like quite apart from any emotional feelings and intellectual feelings that I have about this, I do think that you know Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell are master craftsmen of the arts that they practice. And watching them go head to head on something like this, you know, I, I know people love to hate Mitch McConnell and a lot of people on the right love to hate Nancy Pelosi. This is kind of part of their their skill set. They are incredible leaders of legislative coalitions, incredibly effective. And watching them in this zero-sum game relationship play chess is really, uh, you know, something that you don't get to do that often. And I'm just really curious who's – it seems to me McConnell has the much stronger hand. Can Nancy Pelosi just outplay him? And I think it's it's just – it's like watching two really great chess players. If Donald Trump were back in the TV business, he would cast them in a reality show. (laughs) Oh, and and it helps that they are both so relentlessly uncharismatic. That's kind of what makes like they, like they actually neither of them work in a in a. Can you imagine a reality show with Mitch McConnell? Uh, uh, no, <laughs> exactly. That, they're, they're, snoozer. They're yes, fa- snoozer. They're fascinating. You don't want to watch either of them on television. Neither of them can make a good speech, but they are brilliant, brilliant strategists of their coalitions and the constituencies that underlie their coalitions in times of intense partisan division. And I just think just watching them go at each other like this is really interesting. All right. Well, we'll see who prevails. Uh, Let's move on to object lessons. Um, Ben, maybe you'd like to kick us off. So. So. (laughs) So. A gentleman named Tyler Silvestri, who describes himself on Twitter as law student, journalist, home brewer, technically a minister, camp director, bookseller slash buyer, turkey parent, slowly writing a book. But most importantly, a rational security list. Yes. Has taken a – Troller in chief. Has taken a break from writing his book. To do a remarkable study of this is uh, what you do when you're writing a book. You take breaks <laughs> to do a little study. Yeah, and he did a study which procrastination I'm, actually equals forward momentum. I'm yes. just going to read the entirety of his Twitter f- uh, thread about it, um, but I urge you to find it. We'll put it on the show page because the charts are really important. It says a while back. Ironically, I can't find the episode. You mentioned how often the word so starts off the show. I spent a genuinely stupid amount of time proving that theory right. The first was Ben in May 2016, but when Shane started doing it in September 2016, it spiraled out of control. (laughs) (laughs) This doesn't count phrases like um, so, etc. If you add those, there are another 22 instances. But who's counting? He he offers uh, what he describes as very raw slash dumb data on a spreadsheet on Google Docs. And then he says, I actually think so is a perfectly fine way to start the show. 
but it's sort of a stunning it's sort of stunning how often it happens when you look at the data in any case please keep up all the good work team and he accompanies this with a pie chart that shows that so begins 41% of rational security episodes including this so one so really far ahead of hello which is 27% and that uh Shane is really the worst offender, although that's a little unfair because he starts most of the shows. Well, and that's also making a a normative assumption about the word so. I have no problem with it. It's a great part of speech. You can modulate it. So? 73 shows have started with Shane saying the word so. (laughs) Cronkite had, and that's the way it is, and Shane Harris has... So. so so I want to take issue with Tyler's assessment <laughs> for the following reason. I will just say I appreciate that he measured also hello. But so is ever since we started starting the show with our B-roll. Exactly. Ah, yeah. That's why. So I feel like it's a bit weighted because towards so because of the structure and the architecture of the show. That's right. We mean to do it. It's the intentional. Thing is We're this setting is a mood. Data-driven, it's data-driven analysis, which is the heart and soul of rational security. Yes. Tyler, yeah. thank, thank you. Thank you, Tyler. Now go back to writing your damn book. <laughs> do either of you have objects? No? Okay, well, I'll be mine then. So my object, uh, it's another journalist, but this is also a photo of your her. object. You're objectifying a journalist? It's like the third time I've done this. With in... the same journalist? Oh, no, 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 no. This okay. is a different journalist. All right. So this was – there you go again. There you go again. <laughs> Don't let him get to you, Shane. Never Damn change. Damn it, Tyler. <laughs> uh, on Monday – we didn't even talk about this in the in the you know the bizarre goings on of the past six days, <clears throat> but you recall that the military appeared to have issued a letter announcing that U.S. forces in Iraq were not exactly leaving the country, but a sort of were packing their bags to maybe be moving oh onward. God, it, it says something that we didn't even get to that in the long right. segment on right. Iran. And just the, the quick synopsis of this, you know, the letter comes out, it surfaced, I don't know where it surfaced first, but it, it made the its Iraqi way around. The Iraqi government. So the Iraqi it government puts it out. It was sent to the Iraqi government. You know, journalists get a hold of it. We verify that it's an accurate letter. But then Secretary Esper has to come out to the press corps at the Pentagon and say it's not right. You know, it's, it's totally inaccurate. General Milley then had to come out and say it's not accurate. But then five minutes later after I think talking to someone in the region came back and said, OK, it's accurate, but we're not really leaving. It's not signed. It was a mess. It was an absolute mess. He said it was a draft. A and draft? They, they weren't had been supposed delivered. to have sent it. Right. But then it had gone to the Iraqis who then looked at it and, and said the translation is the not correct. So they yeah. sent it back and then the Americans they sent, sent it, it back again. to the Iraqis. Anyway, all if all fine. of this, all is well. If all of this makes you uh, uh, give you a headache, I want you to look at the expression on the face of my friend Nancy Youssef. Amazing. Who is there in the oh Pentagon briefing? <laughs> perfection was captured by another person. journalist, and I want to say the look on her face, and we'll put the tweet up on on the show page. I know this look. <laughs> I have seen this look many times. And it means... <laughs> this, is, this is just like another day at the office. It is just like these MFers again. <laughs> Not having have it. got to be effing kidding me. Yeah. Nancy and I worked together as folks so twice. She's a really dear friend of mine. And I saw this and just like immediately texted her and was just like, you know, I know this look. <laughs> I've seen this look many times. This is oh, a real look. Yes, indeed. I just want to say, and I don't have the Twitter feed in front 
front of me, but the best response to this letter involved that I saw involved, I believe, a Twitter exchange. I may get this wrong between Scott Anderson and uh, the great Rebecca Ingber. One of them texted at the other, makes it even more amazing we were able to pull off this deep state conspiracy <laughs> thing. <laughs> Maybe we know the military was not involved in the deep state conspiracies. Uh, like, I'm surprised they actually hit Soleimani. <laughs> they knew they had the right guy. <laughs> Maybe it just was all an accident and they were aiming for someone else. Oh, no. It was just accidentally target practice. Oh, boy. Well, on that fine, grim note. So it's time to wrap up the podcast once again. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can buy... Uh, no, you can't buy any merchandise. There's no merchandise that goes along with this. Lawfare themed cruise missiles. Mm, maybe. Duck and cover mm, posters. I don't know. Yeah, we're getting dark. It's getting, getting dark. dark. Nancy Youssef fan merchandise. There you Perfect. go. At Lawfare, we love Nancy. Top block space. <laughs> <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us as well on Facebook. Whenever you download the uh, the Facebook, whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave us a rating and review. We really appreciate it and helps other people find the show. Our audio engineers this week were Michaela Fogel and Hadley Baker. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Mike Pompeo and his jazz and tap dancing quartet, The Imminent Domain. I thought you were going to say his jazz quartet. We're just making this up. <laughs> <laughs> his jazz improv quartet, it's all the imminent improv, domain. Baby. <laughs> uh, does Sophia Yan do jazz? She, she has. has been known to play jazz. Well, sign her up for the imminent domains. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Susan Hennessy, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, I'm Shane Harris, and we apologize for whatever catastrophe will have befallen you by the time you hear this podcast. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>